Affordable housing means different things to different people. After all, what's affordable to me might not be what's affordable to you, and vice versa. Good morning, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. As part of WFUV's Strike Accord campaign, today's show is all about affordable housing, starting with a definition of the term. The Center for Urban Pedagogy has put together a toolkit to help explain affordability in New York City's housing market. The group uses an interactive felt chart that breaks affordable housing down into easy-to-understand visuals. I met with the center's John Mangin at their Brooklyn offices. Okay, John, well, this show that we're doing today is all about affordable housing. It is a term that is thrown about by lawmakers, by advocates, but what exactly is affordable housing? Exactly. That's what we're going to uh, use this chart to find out. Um, As you say, government officials use it, developers use it, activists use it. A lot of people think it's a trick, but it has a technical definition that comes from the government. And we use this chart to get people to ask the the questions that dig deeper. Affordable to whom? Affordable to which families? And, And how does that housing fit in with the income demographics of this neighborhood? And how do you break all of that down? Well, uh, we can turn to the chart now, actually, if you'd, if you'd like to look at it. So, <clears throat> so it says here, what is affordable housing? Who lives here? Mm-hmm. We start with the government definition of affordable. The government says uh, your housing costs are affordable if they take 30% or less of your gross income. Now, obviously, 30% of a rich person's income is a lot different than 30% of a poor person's income. So when the government says affordable housing or when uh, an activist says affordable housing, generally they're referring to housing that's affordable to families in particular income categories at the lower end of the scale. But in New York City, sometimes that can mean families in the middle of the income distribution or even towards the top. So you really have to ask affordable to whom to find out if it's for very low-income families, low-income families, uh, middle-income families, families earning up to $100,000. You know, affordable housing can be for them in certain contexts in New York, so you really have have to look further. So I would imagine you have to then look at the median incomes for different neighborhoods, not just for the city as a whole. Sure. So all the income categories that I just mentioned are based off a statistic called median family income or area median income. And if you take all the families in a given area and line them up from the lowest income to the highest income, the the median family income is what the family right in the middle of of that distribution earns. It's not an average. It's just what the family in the middle earns. So in New York City, for a family of four, the median family income is $76,800. And then all the income categories, extremely low income, very low income, low income, etc., are uh, expressed as percentage ranges of that number. So uh, low income, for instance, in New York City um, is from 38000 about to about 61000 or from 50% of median family income to 80% of median family income. And so uh, because the affordable housing, affordable housing policy is based on the citywide numbers, sometimes low-income housing, that is housing for families between $38,000 and $61,000, um, can be unaffordable to most of the families in particular neighborhoods if you're in you know, East New York or, or the South Bronx or something like that. So we also developed this chart to look at income demographics in particular neighborhoods. So let's take a look at the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Sure. Uh, the Upper West Side is probably the second wealthiest neighborhood in New York City 
after the Upper East Side. And so we have, uh, we include income demographic data for every sub-borough neighborhood in New York City, along with uh, the chart so people can look at particular neighborhoods. In the Upper West Side, it says that there are about 3,000 extremely low-income families, about 1,300 very low-income families, about 5,000 low-income families, and then towards the upper end of the bracket, we have about 11,000 middle-income families, and those are families from about 90,000 to about 190,000. And then the biggest category of all on the Upper West Side is high-income families. There are about 20,000 uh, families there earning 250% or more of the citywide median income. So we use these felt pieces to put them on a chart to make an income demographic histogram of that particular neighborhood. And then the second step in the workshop is to take li these little housing patches here and um, input housing costs into the chart so that we can compare who lives in a given neighbor neighborhood with how much it costs to live there. Because this color bar on the chart translates annual family income into affordable monthly rent, which, as I said, is 30% um, or less of uh, a family's annual income. So if you earn $40,000, for instance... 30% uh, of that is $1,000 a month. If you earn $180,000, 30% of that is $4,500 per month. So we're looking at the Upper West Side now, and we see big distributions of families at the uh, upper ends of the income uh, distribution. But we also see clusters of families in the extremely low-income category as well. And what explains that? There is uh, public housing, uh, for instance, in, uh, in the Upper West Side. There are clusters of, of public housing. Um, there are also SRO buildings, single-room occupancy buildings that, um, you know, sometimes actually have more than one person in them, have, uh, you know, small families living in them as, as well. Um, and so those are kind of on their way out on the, on the west side. Um, but that would also account for some of the lower-income families down there that you don't see, say, in the upper east side, which is almost entirely the upper end of the income bracket. So what does that tell you about the need for affordable housing in a neighborhood like that if the majority of the population is earning quite a high income? Well, if the majority of a neighborhood is earning a very high income, then sometimes the, you know, the so-called affordable housing that's built there actually would be fairly affordable to the people who live there. But it would still be out of reach for many of the families that we'd see in other neighborhoods around the city, whether that's the Lower East Side Chinatown, um, which has, you know, many new immigrants who have yet to get a foothold in the economy, uh, includes large numbers of public housing residents or Section 8 residents as well. If you go into the, the outer areas of the other boroughs, East New York or, uh, you know, Brooklyn, as I said, or um, some neighborhoods in the Bronx or poor neighborhoods in Queens, you have huge clusters of, of families down at the lower end of the income bracket. So if a developer proposes a building in a lower-income neighborhood and says, hey, it'll include 20% of affordable housing, okay, affordable to which families? To low-income families. So that would be a rent of about $1,500 for a family of four. And then you look at the income demographics of that neighborhood, and you see that that's, you know, the 80th percentile income. For 80% of the families in the neighborhood, that apartment, that affordable housing would be unaffordable. So you have to look at the interplay between income demographics in particular neighborhoods and the specific rents of the so-called, you know, the affordable housing there. And, you know, for some people... Um, they want to have developments in their neighborhood that bring wealthier people in. If you own your house, say, or if 
uh, you're a small business owner, maybe you want an influx of wealthier people. If you're a renter there, though, you might be worried about displacement pressures, rising rents, that kind of thing. And in fact, you see that in many neighborhoods around the city. Um, we met with a developer last week um, who works in Greenpoint, and he's an affordable housing developer. And he talked about sort of the exodus of a lot of the Polish community from Greenpoint as um, it became trendier and trendier. And so now some of the masses farther out in Brooklyn are, are in Polish now on the weekend because a whole segment of that community just uprooted farther out into Brooklyn where the where the rents are still reasonable. Now, of course, there are people who would never be able to afford housing in certain neighborhoods if it weren't for government assistance. Mm-hmm. And there are programs out there to help people afford their homes, but those programs can be complicated. Do you help people understand what's available? Yes. Uh, once we have the, we lay out the, the different income categories and look at housing costs, we generally segue into a discussion of the various housing subsidy programs that um, help families in the New York area. Uh, so, you know, public housing, 400,000 New Yorkers live in public housing, and it generally serves people in the extremely low-income, very low-income, and low-income categories. In fact, you have to be in those categories to qualify. You know, However, the waiting list is eight years long. It's a very popular program in New York, and it's not a real option for people who need housing now. And then we look at other programs like Section 8, the voucher program, where families spend 30% of their income on rent, and a voucher covers the rest for rents on the private market. And we also look at sort of more obscure programs in the city, like 421A or 8020, or low-income housing tax credits. And these are all subsidies for developers who agree to reserve certain portions of their buildings as uh, affordable housing. And so we try to give people a lay of the land. You have a website where people can log on and they can take a look at neighborhoods themselves. I could spend hours on there looking at the individual neighborhoods and seeing where the wealth is, where the poverty is, etc. Yes, uh, that's envisioningdevelopment.net backslash map. You can... um, Click on any subborough area, any neighborhood in New York, and it instantly shows you the income demographics. And then you can input housing costs to see which families can and can't afford apartments at, at particular rents. And there are some surprises in there. Um, like I mentioned, Lower East Side Chinatown, we think of it as an extremely trendy neighborhood with lots of glitz. And, you know, it is a trendy neighborhood. If we wanted to move in today, it would probably cost us, you know, $2,500 for a one-bedroom apartment or something. It turns out that an apartment that costs $2,500 is unaffordable to an overwhelming majority of the families who live there, many of whom are in public housing or who are recent immigrants, uh, that kind of thing. Or you and you can switch from the Lower East Side to the Upper East Side where, um, you know, all the families in, in the lower or in the upper income category almost, you know, break the chart. There are so many there are so many of them up there. And so just toggling back and forth between Upper East and Lower East sides, uh, heading out to Brooklyn to look at East New York Starrett City, or, you know, look at middle uh, sort of middle class neighborhoods like Bay Ridge, uh, or some of the neighborhoods in Queens. Um, it's it's a really interesting way to to just get a sense of the city and, and who lives where. So you've developed this toolkit who is it designed for specifically? Um, it's designed for housing uh, advocates, for community board members, for policy people, for professors, anybody who needs to explain the technical definitions of affordable housing policy to particular uh, constituents.
John Mangin is with the Center for Urban Pedagogy in Brooklyn. You can learn more about their affordable housing toolkit at envisioningdevelopment.net. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Now that we have a better understanding of affordable housing, let's find out what New York City is doing to make sure there's enough of it to go around. Rafael Sestero is the city's housing commissioner. He joins us now to talk more about the city's affordable housing efforts. Mr. Sestero, thanks so much for taking the time. It's my pleasure. New York City has a goal to build or preserve 165,000 affordable homes by the year 2014. Where does the city stand in that effort? Uh, we are right on track, which is which is great news uh, in today's economy. Uh, last fiscal year alone, that ended in June of 2009, during the probably the worst part of the of, of the economic crisis we faced, we started construction on 12,500 units. Um, to give you some context, that was uh, almost as much as the entire state of California um, got started on in their affordable housing effort. And so we feel very good about um, about where we are in the plan. We're near our 100,000th uh, 100, unit uh, in, the, in the plan um, and have uh, a terrific foundation to build off of uh, over the next four years to finish out the rest of the plan and meet our goal right on time. How, though, has the economic downturn impacted the city's plan? Financing is much harder to obtain. Because financing is harder to obtain, new construction is harder to do. But the opportunity that exists within that is that um, buildings that otherwise would have been taken to market and turned from affordable housing into market rate housing um, are not seeing that conversion. And so we have an opportunity using our um, financial tools to step in and work with new owners of, of buildings to preserve the long-term affordability um, of, of housing that exists today. And that preservation effort um, is going to save tens of thousands of units from leaving the affordable housing stock um, and going market and will keep them affordable housing for the long run for New York City's neighborhoods. Uh, that's the opportunity that exists today, and that's how we're retooling the new housing marketplace plan uh, to take advantage of that opportunity. So in short, the city's preserving more and building less, but is the city still building? We're absolutely still building. At the end of the 165,000 units, uh, we will have preserved about 100,000 uh, units, and we will build about 65,000 new units um, in, uh, in, in and around the city. We've built, uh, we have in construction uh, to date about half of those new construction units, and we expect to do the other half over the course of the next four years. What city neighborhood commissioner would you say is the most in need of affordable housing right now? You know, it's really hard, uh, George, to make that determination because just one thing that hasn't changed um, uh, despite uh, our economic realities today is that affordable housing is still uh, one of the crucial issues in all corners of the city across all five boroughs. And it is no uh, no less important in the Bronx uh, than it is uh, in Manhattan or no less important in central Brooklyn than it is in Queens. And so what we're trying to do is have a five-borough plan um, that builds affordable housing and preserves affordable housing in all of those neighborhoods. I know the city's housing plan includes a commitment to create new communities that serve the middle class. Can you tell us a little bit about that effort? Absolutely. One of the things that we really um, are focused on with our new construction effort is is uh, the effort to, to build uh, and create new communities um, uh, on land that current 
ultimately uh, lies undeveloped. Two quick examples of that. Uh, one is um, in Queens, Arvern. Uh, Arvern by the Sea is a development that we've been working on for many years. There is a new community that is growing out there. A couple thousand units of housing will be built at Arvern by the Sea, but we will also move forward with the second phase of that redevelopment, uh, which is another 1,800 units of housing, a mix of homeownership and rental for moderate income families uh, at Arvern East, which is uh, the next phase. This property was property that was taken through urban renewal back in the 1960s um, and has essentially laid empty uh, for that entire period until uh, the last eight years when we started building out Arvern by the Sea and, and look, look to continue uh, that development in the next four years at Arvern East. The second example I would give you is Hunters Point South, which was a project that this administration began back in 2007, um, acquired land from the Port Authority in Queens on the Queens waterfront, um, and we are uh, in construction right now on infrastructure work that will then lead to 6,000 units of middle-class housing being built on the Queens waterfront. I understand that new units are hard sell, that televisions are even being offered to lure buyers into government-subsidized homes. The important thing to know is that 70% of all the units that we've created under the new housing marketplace plan are rental housing. 30% are home ownership. And while there has been uh, news about uh, developers giving away TVs, the reality is of the roughly 30,000 uh, home ownership units that we've started construction on, the number of those units that are having difficulty selling at this moment uh, is under 2% of all the units. A lot of people who currently have homes are struggling right now facing foreclosure. What are you doing to help them? So one of the key components uh, of, of our retooled uh, housing plan is to launch the most aggressive uh, foreclosure prevention uh, effort uh, anywhere in the country. New York City has, by and large, uh, been luckier than the rest of the country. We haven't seen the, the wave of, of, of uh, homeownership foreclosures that, that other places have. At the same time, we know that our foreclosure problem is threatening some of the most stable uh, middle-class neighborhoods that this city has ever seen in southeast Queens and parts of Brooklyn and, and the northern part of the Bronx. And so we, uh, two years ago, launched the Center for New York City Neighborhoods, um, have funded it with uh, uh, $3 million uh, from the administration, another million and a half dollars from the city council, and have leveraged that up with about uh, 9 or $10 million worth of philanthropic fundraising, uh, and now have an army of legal service providers and counselors out in all of these neighborhoods working with homeowners. But we also know that that's not enough. We need to do more. And so the mayor announced in his state of the city that we're creating a mortgage assistance program, uh, $5 million of city money, and another $5 million in philanthropic uh, match, uh, which will create a $10 million fund uh, that will provide direct cash assistance to homeowners who, but for that cash assistance, could get to uh, a modification of their loan that would allow them to stay in their home. And what are you doing to help landlords of multi-unit dwellings that are struggling just like everyone else, helping them to make sure their apartments are up to snuff? So it's a great question, George, because in New York, as we all know, 70% of our housing stock is rental housing. And so uh, you know, while we have uh, been lucky uh, in the single-family foreclosure crisis, the crisis that, that, that we worry about uh, most in New York and that we're very focused on is distress in our multifamily housing stock, where owners of multifamily buildings um, are unable to meet their obligations, to pay their mortgages, to, to make repairs. And so we've launched uh, a strategy that cuts across multiple uh, 
parts of HPD, our code enforcement operation to our uh, development finance operation and our partner, the Housing Development Corporation, to both ensure that from a code enforcement perspective that owners recognize that they have an obligation to maintain their property, but at the same time, we're providing financial assistance to help owners, um, either existing owners or new owners, uh, restructure their debt and, and stabilize those properties. The mayor and the state of the city announced a $750 million uh, distressed multifamily building fund that would provide acquisition dollars, mortgage refinancing dollars, and um, some renovations and repair dollars to help make the repairs that are necessary and stabilize those multifamily buildings. Commissioner Sestero, thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Raphael Sestero is New York City's housing commissioner. In New York City, the word miracle has been used to describe the safe landing of a U.S. Airways plane in the Hudson River. And of course, we're all familiar with the fictitious one that occurred on 34th Street. But some say an affordable housing complex in Manhattan's theater district is also deserving of miracle status because of the positive impact it's had on the once blighted neighborhood and on the lives of its residents. I talked with a woman who's called Manhattan Plaza home for more than two decades and another woman who's making a documentary about the complex. My name is Alice Elliott, and I'm the director of the documentary film The Miracle on 42nd Street about Manhattan Plaza. My name is Kathleen Treat. I'm chair of the Hell's Kitchen Neighborhood Association as well as a resident for 22 years here at Manhattan Plaza. Now, of course, we have all heard of the miracle on 34th Street. Who knew there was a miracle on this street? Yes, um, that's what they call this building because how transformative it's been for the neighborhood, that it's actually been, uh, we think, the keystone for changing uh, the, the whole of 42nd Street and the west side. Take us back. How did this building come to be? Well, in the early 70s, uh, Richard Ravitch and uh, Irving Fisher built this building, and they stopped halfway through because they ran out of money. And they got a $95 million loan from the city of New York. And uh, because they weren't able to complete the building, it looked like they were going to default on the loan. So uh, something had to be done, and um, they could not. the building was unrentable at the rates that they had uh, determined. And so they there was a real crisis, because if this building didn't get completed and didn't get rented, the city could default. So it was a real corner cornerstone in that time. And so what they did is they, um, we don't really know who, but many people um, contributed to the idea of uh, creating this as uh, housing for performing artists. And it started out that people had the idea of make the whole building. And then people from the neighborhood said, wait a minute, you know, we've been living here in substandard housing for many, many years. How can you do that? And so a plan was come up uh, with that they were able to get um, Mitchell Lama uh, funding, which they had, and then they um, brought in project-based Section 8 housing, um, and that they were able to, they had, it took an act of Congress to uh, change the rules about Section 8 housing because there were many studio apartments, and Section 8 housing was actually conceived of for families, and that some of the people living here would not have families because they were performers and they were single, and so it was quite an innovative, and there was a real political will to make this happen because there was a concern that if you had a um, traditional Section 8 housing um, in this area that you wouldn't really um, change the neighborhood. You would simply reinforce um, the downward trend of the neighborhood. And so there's a quote, um, I don't know whether it's true or not, but um, that Irving Fisher said, uh, 
Well, who looks like they have money but don't? He says, it's actors. <laughs> Kathleen, you've been here for more than 20 years. How did you come to move into this building? My husband is an actor, and uh, he and I were living in a pre-law tenement, a seven-flight walk-up. And the week we got married, we were called to see this fabulous apartment on the 33rd floor. And we said, yes, 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 we want it. The building has um, a, f- a fluctuating income uh, that is that your rent is adjusted according to your income. And so uh, I think that's a great advantage for artists because it doesn't prevent you from being successful. You don't aren't afraid of being successful. And um, one of the people we interviewed said, you know, every, every month that I can pay the full rent, I'm so proud to be doing that because it means I'm being successful in my work. And so there's that, that to not have that stigma or that fear that you're going to lose your home because you're doing well. I mean, how ridiculous would that be? So there are some things that really work well about this building. I would think this must be such a lifesaver for an artist because you could be employed, maybe you're in a show on Broadway that runs for three or four months, and then I'm unemployed again. We have lots of gypsy dancers, chorus boys and girls living in the building, and you're absolutely right because that is can be a hand-to-mouth kind of life, and the same is true if you're in the chorus at the Metropolitan Opera or New York City Ballet. We don't subsidize our arts as well as other nations, and uh, a lot of people are broke a lot of the time. You're quite right. Alice, tell me how this building helped to transform this neighborhood, because back when it was constructed, back when all of this was going on, people didn't want to live here. Yeah, that's true. And so um, this ha- this building, and we, we really don't know why it was built as luxury housing in the area that it was, that this building has a swimming pool, it has tennis courts, it has a health club, and these and balconies, these are all considered middle-class amenities. But when the time came for people to actually move in, it, it was the flight time. People were moving to the suburbs. And so the way that this transformed the neighborhood was by getting people who had a commitment to the neighborhood – Um, actors, uh, ushers, uh, box office personnel, people who actually worked in this area, who shopped in this area, who didn't leave at night. And they made a deep, deep commitment to making this a place where they could raise their children, where they could have a life, where they could live until retirement. And so, uh, I mean, there are stories of early tenants going out on the street and actually cleaning up the garbage with garbage bags and planting, and the plants would be ripped out, and they would come back and put the plants back in. And so those kind of things, which seem small, but they actually indicate a huge commitment to making a home, homesteading. We call them the homesteaders in in the film. Now, Manhattan Plaza has, what, about 1,700 units, about 3,500 people who are living here? That's right. That's right. It's a big project, and uh, the thing that's so positive, I think, is that although we don't have any multimillionaires living here, we have different incomes and uh, certainly many different races, and everybody lives together harmoniously. We're not in any way uh, racially segregated. Kathleen, would you say that if it weren't for this building, a lot of people wouldn't be where they are today? I know that Samuel L. Jackson worked here as a security officer. I know that Mickey Rourke lived here. Tennessee Williams... It's a very nurturing place for artists, which makes it unique. Um, Another interesting story is that Larry David uh, lived 
in um, substandard housing in the neighborhood. He tells a story about walking in his door and killing all the cockroaches. And then he got into this building, and um, he said, you know, stand-up comics, there there wasn't a real market for stand-up comics then. And so he said uh, he was actually paying $56 a month in rent. And he met this guy, Kenny Kramer, who lived across the hall, and they did a, a comedy show here, which we have some of the original tapes of that comedy show never seen before of young Kenny Kramer and young Jim Vallely, who is also a, a comedy writer in, in Hollywood, and, and young Larry David. And so he met this guy, Kenny Kramer, and Kenny Kramer started coming into his apartment back and forth, back and forth. Well, of course, this is Kramer in Seinfeld. And this whole, the, the pilot for Seinfeld was written in this building. And the idea that this building has made a whole generation of comedy, of actors. Um, Terrence Howard spent his uh, summers here with his great-grandmother, Minnie Gentry. People have actually been able to have careers because they were nurtured here. So, Alice, what's the status of the film? When can we expect to see it? Oh, George, (laughs) thank you for asking. Um, We've been working for two and a half years, and um, we started our documentary just as the financial situation took a big tumble. And uh, so we've been soliciting donations. And so it's a very stop and start kind of thing. I wish I could give you a date, but um, we get closer all the time. Um, Our goal is to appear in the Tribeca Film Festival. That would be our goal for probably for next year. Well, I hope you reach that goal and hope the film is very successful. Alice, thank you so much. Thanks so much, George. Kathleen, thank you. Of course. Kathleen Treat has been living at Manhattan Plaza for more than two decades. Alice Elliott is directing a documentary about the affordable housing complex called Miracle on 42nd Street. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. If you'd like to get involved in efforts to build and preserve affordable housing in the tri-state region, check out our Strike Accord page at wfuv.org. There you'll find a bunch of organizations that can use your help. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Ellen Burke. Have a great weekend. <laughs>